Welcome to Chaotic Harmony. My name is John. This is Crystal. I'm Mark. I'm Zoe. We talk about the joys and the challenges of teaching music in the elementary school classroom. We share inspiration. We share struggles. We brainstorm solutions. We would love to have you join us. Welcome back, everybody, for another episode of Chaotic Harmony. And we are so thrilled to welcome today the wonderful Maju Raj in our midst. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. <laughs> we have been so excited to have her on. I had the pleasure of meeting her all the way back in February. I think the last time I was actually allowed to be together face to face with other music teachers, you and I got to know each other and we had some lunches together and I went to some of her sessions. Um, and that was at CASMAC at the California Music um, Education All-State Conference. Um, and I had wanted to meet you for a long time. I think we've been friends on Facebook for year and a half, two years, something like that. So um, she's been on my list of people to get to know. And I'm so glad that we got to know each other in person before everything shut down because um, you have brought so many great ideas just into my newsfeed and perspectives as I was scrambling, trying to figure out, okay, how are we gonna do this um, with COVID? But I'm just, I'm glad to have you. I can't wait to dig in a little bit later. Welcome, welcome to the podcast. <laughs> Um, so I just wanted to start. Oh, yes. Thank you. I just wanted to start and ask you, um, so where do you currently live and currently teach? Um, I live in Chicago. Mm -hmm. Actually, we live in a suburb, oh, the western suburb of Chicago, but I teach at the Latin School of Chicago. I'm the lower school music teacher there, and I'm also an adjunct professor at the Vandercourt College of Music. That's right. Yeah. And um, how long have you been there? You know what? This probably is going to be my 19th year. That's when I came over from England. And um, yeah, it's good. It's a 19th year here. Wow. And so you've been at the same school for all 19? No, I've been at the okay. same school for, yeah, you know what? Yes, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> 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 wait, wait, wait. I've been at the same school um, for 17 years. Yeah, okay. 2003. Yeah, wow. I came to do my master's at Vandercook and then got into school and yeah, I've been there yeah. for school at 17 years, which is wow. Kind of, yeah. So is that, um, were you teaching over in England or did you start teaching after you came to the U.S.? No, I, um, I'm from India, so I studied in England and then I came here uh, with the intention of getting like a PhD and then going back to India to teach music. Um, to teach teachers, actually. But then, as many of the love stories of the world go, fell in love with my husband, who's from Wisconsin. And we now have a 16-year-old, and that put paid to my plans to go back to my country in the way that I would have loved to. But I think I can still kind of do that. I'm trying to do that in a little bit. Oh, so that's ooh, interesting. So you want to go back? I mean, no, in the sense that I cannot go back because now I'm an American okay. citizen. And Got it. It, the world has changed so much now. So yeah. What part of India are you from? Because it's such a big country. There's so many languages and you know different different regions to it. So where are you from? So my parents are from the southern part of India, and it's very interesting because um, they come from two of the most ancient cultures. My mom is from Kerala, which is on the eastern coast or the peninsula at the very southern part, and my dad is from Tamil Nadu. But we live in a western city of Pune or it's now called Pune by Mumbai. It's a little southwest of Bombay, Mumbai. So I okay. grew up calling it Bombay, but then we changed to Mumbai now. So that's where okay. I grew up actually in Pune. 
I didn't realize that those were the same place. So I just learned something. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. So I wanted to know is, so you wanted to come back to India and you wanted to teach teachers. So do you, did you not set out to be a music teacher to children? Not, no, I was, uh, because in my country, when we don't have the kind of music education that's available in America, you know, if you want to learn Western classical music, you learn in a conservatory style, and then you kind of have these royal schools of uh, music from the Royal College um, from England, the Royal Schools of Music, the examiners come to you, and then they set up different centers, and then you do your piano and your voice and your violin, whatever. And so it's like an extracurricular. It's not like a programmatic thing. But the schools mm -hmm. have music, but it's very much the British style of, you know, singing and choral and, you know, that kind of stuff. So if you were in a private school, in the more public schools, we would have music, but it depends whether you're going to have a classical uh, Indian kind of a program or it's mostly a Western program. But okay. our connotation has been primarily choral. So... The concept of general music was pretty alien, you know, mm -hmm. uh, no pun intended, but the, it's like um, the, the whole idea of general music. Mm -hmm. It's something that we just do through singing, but mm -hmm. I was very, very curious about it. So I did get a scholarship to go to England and do my master's degree there. And then when I came here, I was more concerned about being more of a choral director and, you know, that kind of stuff and going back because that's all I knew. But then I got into, in England, I was introduced to the Kodai system and the Kodai approach and ORF, and that intrigued me. But then when I came back here and then I did my student teaching with this amazing jazz specialist um, who was in the school that I'm teaching in now, by the way, you know, she was uh, my, my supervising teacher, my uh, cooperating teacher, and she was an amazing jazz pianist and an ORF Schulwerk teacher. So that completely got hooked because I had a community choir. I could go in, open up to page, whatever. We would have a warm-up. So we would have this beautiful sound come out. But then to keep the attention of four- and five-year-olds mm -hmm. for that period of time for me was a creative challenge, and I loved that challenge. So she totally inspired me and just be like, you know, it was so captivating to see the way your mind had to work to create this kind of a creative, chaotic chaos, you know, um, yes. the chaos, that organized joyful chaos with kids. Mm -hmm. There's nothing that can beat the sound of children laughing while oh, they are creating and singing and composing and stuff. And that for me was like so different. Mm -hmm. So while I did have a community choir going on, I kind of um, was inspired by her to kind of go do my ORF levels. And okay. I different places coming from a different country, you don't know, you know, mm -hmm. where you need to go to you do your levels and stuff. But luckily, since I was in Chicago, it worked out well because I did a level one here and a level one somewhere else and got to go to different places all over the country to do my different levels. But that's one of the reasons I don't have the kind of bonding thing that you all, all three of you have because you did your levels at same, the same place. And I realized later that going through the levels out here is like creating family, mm -hmm. right? Your lifelong friends and stuff like that. But yeah. as somebody who's come from a different country and you don't know all that stuff, yeah. you only know mm -hmm. the Oshelberg approach is something that is so captivating and that's mm -hmm. what has had you hooked, you know? Um, yeah. So I did my levels in different places. I went back and audited it in different places just because every teacher had something different to offer. 
there yeah. was not like one particular thing. I know every, mm-hmm. every levels mm-hmm. course has a particular vibe, a particular philosophy, a particular kind of, uh, you know what I'm saying? You're smiling, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> you get exactly yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. There's a certain mindset that keeps everybody together. But um, so when I was going through different places, it was like, I was very curious about this whole human nature part of this. Like, what are the dynamics going on? I'm getting this phenomenal orphan pedagogy. But I was also so intrigued by these other things going on with the people relationships. Yeah, you accidentally end up making really great humans uh, in the process of learning how to be a great ORF teacher. And that's something, none of us had general music growing up. So um, we had never seen a general music class in action until we were asked to build them, really. Um, And we all, part of our story is we entered ORF level one um, because our VAPA coordinator um, just told us to. (laughs) She said, (laughs) you're going. And she brought the instructors in and and that was was it for us. We all sat down with our pencils and our notepads ready to take notes for two weeks and um, immediately learned that's not what you do in ORF levels. So we, we just were delighted to stumble upon it. But I hear what you're saying and I have said many times, I want to take a tour of the country and just be a fly on the wall and in you know level two and level three from other teachers because you get completely different content <laughs> in each course but yeah it is it is magical how it bonds you that's so interesting I didn't know that about you so when did you um, decide was it when you were working with that specialist that you decided you wanted to teach elementary yeah I mean that's yeah. exactly um, that was one of the things but um, going back to oh, where, my, where I come from, my dad's parents, my paternal grandparents, they actually were teachers and they had this, um, in a very remote rural village in Tamil Nadu, they actually started a school. It's a, typically a one room school with multiple age groups, mm-hmm. you know? So when we, uh, when my, my dad is a cardiologist, so when we would go back for the summer holidays, I would go onto the chalkboard and pretend in my pretty, in my kind of certified, you know, you know how you think like, you know, the whatever. So yeah. <laughs> you played so, school. <laughs> yes. A lot. I love doing that. And I knew I always wanted to teach. And my dad, he's a cardiologist, but he's also a professor, you mm-hmm. know, so teaching has been always some, a big passion of mine, but I didn't really, I thought I would be more on the performance side of things and with vocal or with singing and piano playing and stuff but the teaching part of it just fascinates me so much you know and i think that just drew me so much Mm -hmm. and then obviously once you kind of start teaching young children and you get hooked onto that yeah yeah something else it's just something else it is something else something that i um Felt like I just wanted to sit and soak up from you when we uh, when I was at Casmic. Um, you were you were teaching um, two sessions. One was on dance, and you really focused on being culturally responsive. Mm-hmm. And the other one was about 21st century Orfschul work. And so you used a lot of technology integration. She's written a book too, just FYI. Um, it's uh, is it technology in today's music classroom? Did I write that yeah, down right? Yeah, that is yeah. not today. It was about all of four years ago. Okay. <laughs> but you know, technology right. and it's changed. So right. today's right. classroom is like something else. So even if, and that's why my whole philosophy has been, it's not about that particular app, but it's mm-hmm. the purpose of the app and the purpose for what we're going to use to teach. Mm-hmm. There are a zillion apps out there, mm-hmm. but taking particular programs and particular things to put together 
whatever is relevant right now, you know, it has to be purposeful. You just don't yeah. go to Flipgrid because it's cool. You do it because you have a specific purpose for it. Right. Yeah. Are the kids actually grasping the objectives? The process hasn't changed. The means of delivery, especially this year, certainly has. But the, the process and the end goal is still the same. And a, another thing that I really appreciated that you kept saying was don't go buy something off teachers, pay teachers, make it yourself. You can do it. You have all the tools. <laughs> you don't need to constantly be spending money. She's like, I made these recorder fingerings in Word using the circle tool. You can do it. Don't ask me to send it to you. <laughs> you know, and I feel like we're always spending money on stuff. <laughs> you don't have to. It was, and I remember that moment really well, Crystal, because mm -hmm. it was all about five lines on the staff, the treble clef staff. And all I did was have a circle shape mm -hmm. come in from the top, animated in PowerPoint. It doesn't get simpler than that. A pathway animation for it from all the way down to the first line. Seriously, mm -hmm. you don't need and to everybody went, teacher pay teachers Ooh. to buy a circle. <laughs> uh <-huh>. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it interesting how... Okay. It's interesting how much we go on. No, no, I apologize. It's it's interesting how often we go on to a place like Teachers Pay Teachers because I feel like we look online to purchase something because it's like supposedly uh, been codified or been checkmarked by some you know institution that is the best way to do it. Like you're right, we all have the means to do, to do it. We just need to. I feel like take the courage to actually make it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, and I I love that uh, a lot of my colleagues are putting up their uh, creative ideas on teacher pay teachers because like you yeah. said a lot of people do not have the time or the mm -hmm. energy yeah. to kind of do that and that serves a huge purpose too yeah it you does know? it, it does but for me is like i'm happy to give you my stuff you know mm -hmm. um, but i would love it's the it's the same thing you know you it's like the the you know that story about the fisherman you know uh -huh. you, Kind of give them the money you teach them how to fish kind of thing yeah so i would say like if you know how to do it then you can just create your own materials for your kids because as right. much as i love a lot of things i'm not one somebody who loves cutesy stuff i don't like those pretty uh, or whatever is kind of again this comes back to the culturally uh, responsive part of it from my perspective what i consider good might not be what you consider beautiful mm -hmm. right so what attracts me is different. And I just keep it simple, straightforward, and still very professional looking. So my kids know that when they come to my stuff and they see all my lessons and we go through everything, I don't have any cute clip art or anything. I just have functional stuff that looks really cool. If mm -hmm. that makes any sense, you know? It does, yeah. So it's very clean. It's, it's just very clean because I get distracted mm -hmm. a lot. If I look at something that I want to know, you know, what what's the spider doing out there? Does it have any functionality in my lesson? No, it's just a little <laughs> thing out there, with just decorative. Uh, okay, yeah. but that's distracting me right now, you know? Yeah. So if there's a border that's like a scalloped border, that distracts me for some reason. I don't know. Because I, I the OCD part of me wants to make sure that every curve is like lined up or something. I don't know. <laughs> so if that's can you imagine the kids yeah you know because all they need is something else to kind of focus yeah. on so anyway yeah no that makes sense 
Well, and also I was thinking about how, isn't that the purpose of uh, like going back to making your own materials? It's kind of what, what you're encouraged to do as you progress through the ORF levels. It's like, here's what, what others have done and here's the theory behind it. Now go blow it open and do it yourself and put your own stamp on it. And if you really embrace it, then the things that you put in front of your kids will never be the same twice because they're not the same kids. Um, and, and you'll continue to evolve and have something to share. It's all these springboard of ideas. So I like that. I like that idea. Anything else that you guys wanted to, to say on that? Well, you know, we went into, oh, sorry, into that specifically or just in general? Eh, whatever. I just well, want to uh, give you a chance. Awesome. <laughs> uh, no, you were, uh, I was, unfortunately, was not there when you gave right. um, your workshops, but you were talking about cult cultural responsiveness. Do you mind expound? What was that? In a nutshell, what was that workshop on? Uh, I mean, because I, I, I missed it. I'm curious, but that was not. No, um, actually, okay, there, there's such different things. There's culturally responsive teaching, which is the whole area of cognitive stuff. That's something that needs to inform our teaching, knowing that our kids' cultures impact how they will learn, how they assimilate information, how they take in stuff, you know, and how they're able to react and express their knowledge to us. It's also the way that we are teaching. It's all about relationships, you know? So for, for, for me, and I'll give you an example. For me, um, okay, uh, an example of culturally responsive teaching that was not very responsive, okay? So for example, when I was doing my levels and uh, to my ear, a particular orchestration or a particular selection or the timbre of an instrument layered with another instrument that sounded very cool. But to my teacher, who was brought up in this Western tradition about you don't mix this timbre with that timbre, that was a no-no. Okay? So I had to modify what felt good and beautiful to me to suit what felt appropriate for her. But if, um, and I know for my kids, it's like, does that sound beautiful to you? Why did you make these choices? Can you rationalize or communicate to me why you made these choices? If you can articulate to me why you made the choices that you did, and it makes complete sense to you, go for it. Mm -hmm. You see, and that's the kind of safe learning environment that we want all our kids to have. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, something feels good to me, great. Can you explain why it feels good to you? In a way, it also kind of helps them introspect, introspectively kind of reflect on their thinking. Mm -hmm. So that the next time they create something, they can say, this is exactly why I'm putting these fragments together or these blocks together. Because in my world, that makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? So that's so good. That, that is so good. Of saying culturally <sighs> So uh, the other thing is like for some, in some cultures, looking directly into a teacher's eyes is disrespectful. Mm -hmm. But for us, sometimes when you look at a child or some, a student who is not give, meeting your eyes, you're saying, okay, they're hiding something or they're being evasive, you know? But in that culture, I'm being respectful to you by not looking at you. You see, mm -hmm. I mean, these little cultural cues. And then some of the arguments that I've heard is like, but I have zillions of kids. I have 500 kids. Are you expecting me to learn about each one of them? Well, what can we possibly do to kind of at least be aware? 
I think that's the first step. Yeah, it's probably physically impossible for us to get to know people, but we also have the kids over multiple years. We have the luxury of that. Mm -hmm. Slowly by slowly, just kind of being aware and kind of changing our mind shift and having that inform our practice for me. It seems that is one way to at least get started. Yeah. And that's the teaching part of it. Then we go into multicultural stuff, which is different. Then yes. we go into what is culturally appropriate or culturally, like what's appropriation versus appreciation. Yes, yes. how do you yeah. diversify your, your activities without crossing that line into cultural appropriation? Yes. Right. Tell so, us. Um, so, <laughs> Give the answers. <laughs> I know. <laughs> okay. <You> demand it. <laughs> All right. So I would say, um, um, I think Susan, Susan Scafidi, I think, uh, is the author of the book about who owns culture. And <clears throat> I think they talk about taking an intellectual property that's traditional knowledge or cultural expressions or artifacts on somebody else's culture without permission or uh, taking something like the music or the folklore, you know, just taking that. Um, I don't know what constitutes unauthorized use, but I think for me, it comes from a place of arrogance and entitlement. Hey, that's cool. So let me just get that. Or um, I expect you to teach me about your culture. But that for me would be appropriation. And especially when it's like more about the sacred objects or the sacred music of a different culture. And just thinking, oh, that sounds cool. I want to bring that into my classroom. So let me go learn this song and bring it in. That is like the very, very superficial surface part about cultural appropriation for me. But appreciation would be like some going, approaching it from um, a place of humility and learning. Like this is so wonderful that uh, you are you are doing this. Like, can you can I learn more about this? It honors another person's culture. It honors the practices, and the the whole aspect is to gain knowledge and understanding to connect with that particular culture, to give credit for the inspiration, and wherever possible to include the culture bearer or the source group. So that is appreciation in my, for me, and appropriation, like I said, it's, uh, I mean, I break it down into very simple stuff. One is like feeling entitled to grab and bring it in. The other is how can I learn and how can I best authentically bring in the source material or the source, the person, or the people to kind of bring it in from there? Or can I go learn it from a master teacher who then gives me permission to bring it in? That, that's for me is appropriation versus appreciation. Mm -hmm. So it's twofold. It's a posture towards your approach toward the material and it's um, how much are you doing the work to seek out the context and seek out the original sources and bring those voices into the conversation as much as possible. Take the step. And I'm doing that. Right. So I, this, this might seem like a very simplistic definition, but for me, mm -hmm. from my perspective, that's the way I look at it, especially as somebody who is from another culture. You know, when I say from another culture, I am not from another, another culture. I'm from my own culture. That's my identity, you know, right, so, yeah. but right now I'm the dominant culture of white America, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the majority of the people that I interact with and work with, mm -hmm. right? So yes. that's dominant cultures. So when somebody comes to me and says, um, 
you know, uh, not not him come to me and says somebody just says, hey, we uh, we just have this great we heard this great song on whatever website it is there where somebody has created a song about Diwali, and it's all about lights and stuff like that, and it's got a very kind of it almost sounds very simplistic. Simplistic. Okay, you wrote a song about Diwali. Fine, you know, but is that appropriation? I think so, because that. Whoever composed that song um, did not, probably had a couple of Indian friends, I guess, probably knows a little bit about what Diwali is, yeah? Um, and it's okay to create songs about something, but if you really wanted to be more authentic and really wanted to be appreciative of a culture, you would go to a culture bearer and say, can you co-write this with me? Maybe you don't have the musical knowledge or tools to write a song or whatever. But can you tell me or lead me to those places where I can be learn about it? Or better still, can you lead me to somebody who can who who is willing to teach me, or is willing to kind of um, come in and teach my kids mm -hmm. this? You know, so yeah. so um, something like that. You know, I, I'm just saying it. I know there are other cultures where things are very very specific. Now, mm -hmm. India, like I'm just speaking for my culture, like when you talk about Indian music, that is huge. Because when you talk about Indian music, it's so diverse. Yeah. It's not all this, the Hindustani and the Carnatic. Then there's the Bollywood fusion, which mm -hmm. is a mixture of so many things, right? So mm -hmm. again, when you talk about what is traditional Indian music, how do you even define something like that? Mm -hmm. You know? So right. again, when we talk about like, how do we bring that? It's like talking to our communities and saying, okay, what do you have? Or whether people are willing to compose, like whether I am willing to compose, which I can, you know, about um, using the elements of what, whatever my musical background is with Indian music. And I've, if I can compose stuff, because in my culture, we don't have traditional things that have been passed down that are accessible and singable by the common people. You have mm -hmm. to have many, many, many years of study with a guru to play a, an instrument to sing. You see? Mm -hmm. If so, I could play devil's advocate for a second, because, um, mm -hmm. for example, I come from a Philippine background, right. um, and which is a, an amalgamation of Filipinos plus Malaysian plus Spanish plus American influence, um, right. and it's what is Philippine music is a big question mark because it's been colonized by so many different uh, cultures. And I remember back in my uh, in undergrad, I was trying to write a paper on like, how does Philippine music reflect its own culture. Um, and I unfortunately wasn't able to finish that paper. I eventually do hope to get back into it. But something that has come up uh, as I try to wrestle cultural appropriation and, and respectfulness, um, where do you find the line between um, being respectful to a culture, but also allowing fusion. For example, Bollywood, I, I'm not, I don't know the history behind it, unfortunately, but like that is a fusion of traditional Indian and also a Western influence, is it not? So like, where is that line between being respectful and also allowing things to be molded and allowing cultures to grow? Yes, that's what I'm looking for. I think if you look at any, um, okay, here is what I would say. A good example of, for me, what is good, authentic, current Indian music or uh, uh, the performance of it 
by young people is by looking at some of the college campuses, okay? And you look at some of the kids from India or who have uh, uh, roots in India, who are musicians, yeah? And they would take whatever they have and make it their own. So if you look at a lot of things, there are, there are, few, there are things about Carnatic music, but they have like a little bit of a Western or whatever is called Western music, popular music. The genres are mixed up. Mm-hmm. For me, that is pretty authentic because that's the music of the people. That's what speaks to you. It's all about your identity. This is music mm-hmm. I identify with as an Indian or somebody with Indian roots. But this is appeals to me because I'm living in this culture. This is mine now. So mm-hmm. I am making my own culture as I go through this world as a young person. Okay. I'm hearing all this stuff. I have my roots. But now I'm living in this place, which means I am creating this new thing as I'm going along, which is very interesting to me. Mm-hmm. But then when I go back to my country for holidays or whatever, and one of my things, again, has been to um, to go to different places and collect a lot of the singing games and uh, chants and the songs that, I, that children do. Because that, for me, it seems that that's a dying thing now because we are getting so um, globalized in the sense there's a lot of technology coming in, a lot of the, the traditional, whatever we used to be traditional, is dying away. So some of the songs and chants that I learned and, and the playground are have been refined, you know, for mm-hmm. now because children are different, you see? So I might see elements of what I've done with hand clapping games or, you know, things like that. Obviously, it's a new world. And I have a lovely quote by um, Rabindranath Tagore, and I remember this morning, I think I was reading it somewhere, and it's so beautiful because it says, oh yeah, um, and Rabindranath Tagore was, um, he was a wonderful poet, um, a teacher, a philosopher, and he wrote, don't limit a child to your own learning, for she was born in another time. That's good. That's how good. Profound yeah. is that? <laughs> how mm-hmm. profound is that? You know, so my philosophy always has been the live and let learn part of it. I don't know everything, you know. So if um, when we go back, but then again, I would say there are purists. There are people who have learned, spent years and years and years learning a particular strand. For them, that is pure music. Mm-hmm. What is the pure or the should or very, very clear. Clearly, that is a purified thing. Nothing should be contaminating that. But then that is the sphere that they have been brought up with. That is their philosophy. They're entitled to have that. Yeah. But somebody mm-hmm. else says, okay, I love this raga. Can I take that raga and then put it to this beat and have this uh, melody that's based on the pitches of the raga? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then can I now make that my own? If that's what is fulfilling you as a creative artist. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, it's it's interesting. I, I fully agree with you. It's just, it's hard. It's very, to just, it, it's very yeah. nebulous. There's also just so many voices, and I and I agree because yeah. like there are people, there are the purists that say no, this is the way it's supposed to be. Then you have people who come from, um, and I don't want to throw words that are rude, but in the same sense, like <laughs> you come from like you know a lot of uh, if you come from an imperial background, like a culture that you know has colonized others and you feel like this is interesting, I want to fuse it with my art, but 
that's seen as uh, as uh, appropriation of, of, um, for understandable reasons. And so it's, it's a weird dance on what what is acceptable, what it isn't. And so I think... No, when I was talking about my... I was talking about a person of Indian origin, actually. Right, of course, yes. Yeah, but I, because I myself would have, like, a, a knee-jerk reaction to somebody else coming and saying, hey, this sounds cool, let me put it with this, because I went and studied with a guru for three months. Hello? <laughs> okay, I'm glad you did that, okay? And I'm glad you're kind of doing whatever. But again, do you have permission... If you have the blessings of your guru to kind of take that art and then, you know, make it your own. I wonder, because that again becomes a totally different thing again, you know, because mm -hmm. I, I, this is where music is so, you can't really quantify it. It's such a, a personal thing. But again, giving credit where credit is due, I think that is the least one person could do. Saying, this is what I've learned. This is what I've taken from it. This is what I've created from it. This is my lens and my perspective, not representative of this culture. Mm -hmm. But if you yeah, I think on the I perspective, yeah, that I think would keep you kind of safe, and it keeps mm -hmm. you honorable and creditable. I, I think that that is where I'm understanding we need we can do better in the future is where, you know, me as a white female in a white female dominated profession, I might have the best of intentions, you know, to gather Filipino and Mexican or Indian songs and try to represent all of the holidays that everybody celebrates and try to study all their sounds and make up songs in my classroom. And the minute I take all of those things that kind of sound like things that represent their culture to my ears through my lens and write a book and try to make money off of it from other music teachers and say, this is a wonderful example of a diverse classroom, we have a problem. Um, because I'm layering my white perspective over their holidays. And so it would be much better if instead I could say, you know, can your grandma teach me a song that you sing when you're celebrating this holiday? Or can, can you come in and talk about what this means to you? We can, we can do better. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about that because you went there. So we're going to talk about it. <laughs> Well, can I just have a clarifying thing, the Crystal? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Because even when we talk about Indian music, mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of people, especially the South Indians, you mm -hmm. know, like we'll say, like, for example, when you talk about Asians, sometimes you even think Indians would want to be called Indians, just like Koreans would like to be called Koreans. Japanese mm -hmm. would like to be called Korean. We can't lump everybody as Asian. So similarly in India, there are so many different cultures and lang subcultures and languages. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about Indian music, that becomes like, which language are you talking about? Whose right. culture are you talking about? Which dance are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Which religion are you talking about? Are you talking about Hinduism or Sikhism or Buddhism or Catholicism or Christianity? Because there's so, there's so much, you know? Yeah. So there's so much to unpack yeah. out there. So again, if we have the, the people in our community were members of that culture or culture bearers those are the biggest best source material for us mm -hmm. you know uh, if they yeah. have their 
their permission, I think that's really important. I'm sorry, I just made it, needed to clarify that part of it because yeah. I appreciate you doing that. And I'm I'm trying to erase certain words from my vocabulary too. Like instead of you know saying you know Latino or Hispanic, you know if we're talking about something specific or in class, to talk about what country it actually came from because those we do have these large umbrella terms and they're problematic because they lump people into these giant groups and they and people don't like being shoved into boxes. They don't fit and so which I want to make sure that my language is as honoring and authentic as possible. So I appreciate that. Thank you for clarifying. Um, and I wanted to talk to you about um, what has it been like, because you, you had mentioned that you're the only Indian um, AOSA teacher educator, uh, right? Is that correct? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, as far as mm -hmm. I know, I think AOSA levels teacher. I'm sure uh -huh. we have a lot of I, I love, I know a lot of really wonderful teachers who are of Indian origin. Mm -hmm. But, but levels I'm teacher. I'm the only, yes, yes. Yeah. And that's a matter of pride for me, actually, which is like, I worked darn hard to get here. You did. <laughs> you did. And no, she has mentored a lot of people. Uh, it's not easy to get into the AOSA world, you know, mm -hmm. especially if you're, um, if you're not black or if, I mean, black people or the African-American people do have a lot of things against them in this, mm -hmm. in this country, it's terrible, you mm -hmm. know, and there is a lot of systemic racism that has played into not just the AOSA, but every, every, every educational institution, every institution. Okay. Just because of the, the kind of thing, but since I am not from that, um, that group and I have, I have a level of, um, I would say, privilege too, because as somebody who's coming from a different country, even though we have been colonized, we were never taken away from our land to be put into a different land. Yeah. So um, that is a different whole conversation by itself. But people of color traditionally um, have had a real problem getting into any kind of um, a position, whether you are a levels teacher, you know, whether you are on the board, whether you are a representative of whatever, because again, people will elect people who look like them. Mm -hmm. People will be invited to, there's a lot of gatekeeping to become or be nurtured or to be mentored if you look like them or you think like them or if somebody kind of has a say, no, I, I don't want to use the word savior complex kind of thing, but somebody who would wants, wants to take you under their wing to say, hey, I have this really talented person of color that I want to bring up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If they're doing it from an authentic perspective, great. But if they're doing it to make themselves feel good, which I think often does happen, hey, look mm -hmm. at me, I'm here using my white privilege to bring up another person of color. You know, again, looking at it from a person, a thing of humility saying, I have all these privileges, which this becomes an equity issue, which a person of color does not have. And I recognize that. What can I do to support that person who might be as smart as I am, who has everything going from them, except they were not, they're not part of this dominant race. You see, that becomes a whole equity part of it. So mm -hmm. I have gone through a lot of that stuff, as have a lot of other fellow teachers of color, mm -hmm. you know, um, in the AOSA group. Yes, 
we have gone through something but i will say that this present board is making very very deliberate purposeful um kind of advancements towards that they're trying very they, they recognize this they have dr nicole robinson who is part of the well, who's part of this big change about making sure that AOSA is actually being dragged into the 21st century, coming back to 21st century or children, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> which yeah. is all about, you know, being accepting of different cultures. And if you look at Orschel work, if um, it's an international thing, it's not just America, you know. Um, and if you look at the teachers from other countries, especially from Europe, and they're amazing that their, their way of looking at Orschel work is so different. It's so inclusive, mm. you know, again, it's coming from a place of humility. Mm -hmm. And it, it's just amazing to watch these teachers from Finland, from Spain, from Turkey and Greece and uh, Salzburg, from Austria and Germany, the way they look at the Orschel work. I have been so impressed and influenced by them. And that's the model that I would love to emulate, you know, because yeah. that for me is what Orf Schulwerk is, I should say Orf Kateman Schulwerk, but, you know, again, giving Kateman giving credit where it's due. I don't want to go yeah. there because that's another huge rabbit hole that we could go through where, where somebody sure. would have done most of the work. But yeah. you know, for whatever reasons, I haven't done enough research in there. It does not have her name linked with, but all the stuff that we are doing is basically her work that we yeah. consider as original source material. You know, so again, the, uh, for me, I've been uh, whenever when I went to um, Salzburg, or whenever I have studied with teachers who are from that tradition. You know, uh, there has been such an amazing way of the way they looked at, which is why when I did my apprenticeship, I went to the San Francisco school, the international school, and I wish I'd done all my levels there. Mm. I really do. I feel that has been one of the most inclusive places that I have found, you know, um, in America. So uh, to grow as, a, as an Orschelberg teacher, if you are not from here. And I, I deliberately am using the phrase not from here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because that has been said to me, you're not from here, therefore you don't understand. Wow. You know, which is wow. sad. Yeah, but you know what? Yeah. We go through it. And we learn, and we learn mm -hmm. what not to be and what not to do for our kids and for our families and mm -hmm. for our fellow teachers that we want to bring up. You see, yeah. for our colleagues yeah. to support them. So. We can do better. And it, it just oh, like yeah. we extend, like, like you're saying, we need to extend that courtesy to the children and say, tell me about that. Tell me why you made that choice. Tell me why that's a beautiful sound to your ear. We can at least extend that same courtesy to our colleagues. Um, and just begin to understand each other. And uh, and yeah, we've got a long way to go, but I am encouraged by some of the statements that have come out by some of the very real action steps that I'm seeing being taken. So, and I thank you for, for constantly speaking up and being that person who isn't afraid to say, hey, this is not okay. And you're not allowed to do that to me. So, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, so that the, the thing is like when a person of color does that it's very easy to um and i think i've been lucky because i've been not as vocal as many of my colleagues have mm -hmm. because when you get start getting vocal you're considered to be a problem and then people stop listening to you 
you want to make sure that the channels of communication are always open. Mm -hmm. Right? You want people to listen to you. So I think it's, it's, it's something that people of color really find very, very difficult to navigate this whole thing. It's like, I want you to get there. But I know if I, I have to really kind of be very careful in the way I say stuff or frame things. Because one wrong phrase here will shut down the conversation. You see? So mm -hmm. there's some, and that's what a lot of teachers of color, um, you know, or colleagues of color have to walk that path. And I think with this whole, with the pandemic, with the systemic aware, the awareness about systemic racism and the awareness of um, the, the accessibility and the number of workshops and the number of PDs that are being offered about all these um, issues and the number of people who are attending them, there's a greater awareness, but it's still not going to be something that happens overnight. Because right. you, it's a visceral reaction. If I say the word white privilege, immediately it shuts down some people. Mm -hmm. yeah. Immediately, because that's a gut reaction. You're telling me that I am a bad person. Nobody wants mm -hmm. to be considered a bad person, you see? Mm -hmm. No? So you don't want to shut that right. conversation down. So it's, yeah, I, I've been very judicious and I support a lot of people who have been more vocal, you know? about things like that um, and I admire them and I have chosen to kind of be very judicious in the way I say things. So I might not speak up every time. Mm -hmm. you know, so I don't want people to kind of think like, okay, but when things do get pretty egregious because it's a fine line you're walking at any minute, the threat is you are going to be cut off. Mm -hmm. Do you see that? Yeah. As a person of color, the threat is always the moment I say something, I am going to be shut down. And then it's going to take me all those years of work again to rebuild myself. Mm -hmm. It's like the spider climbing and climbing, climbing, getting, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's sad in a way, but um, that's the way the world is. And that's the way we just need to persist so that mm -hmm. it's a better place for the next generation of teachers and the next generation of kids. It's an easier thing for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's something that I've been watching really closely um, as I've dipped my toe into this world, because I, I just got into this world a couple of years ago. I think I've only, I've only known about, we've all only known about Orf Schulwerk for four years. And so we're just kind of looking around. It's an interesting time to enter and go, so what's going on over here with this crowd of people? Um, and and it's it's making me ask these questions like, okay, so here's here's what we've got going on. And, and, and so what direction do we need to take it in the future? And how can I be a part of that? Um, and, and maybe I don't need to take every single leadership opportunity. Maybe I better, you know, grab my buddy who is just as awesome and is a minority and has a voice that needs to be heard. And I put her in front instead. Um, and I think that we can all start looking around and doing a little more listening. I think that's what it comes down to as a teacher, as a colleague, we, we need to be a lot better at listening. Um, and it's, it even goes back to that whole conservatory approach to, to train, which we come back to in almost every single episode. You know, there's one way to learn. That's how we were all trained as musicians. There's one right way to do it. And I felt, I felt for years like I didn't belong in the singing world, even though I'm a trained vocalist, because my voice doesn't fit anywhere. I was never good enough at anything. And, you know, when you have that complex as a, as a 
musician, you know, um, which I think everybody does. I'm not a good enough trumpet player. I'm not a good enough flute player. I'm not a good enough singer. That We don't want that. We, we want to build people up. You know, why is your music bringing you joy and feeding your soul? Why is teaching important to you? How can we honor the creativity in each other? How can we honor the creativity in our students? If we can start with that question, I think we could actually make some progress. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I didn't want to go down this rabbit hole, but like, it was like, no, like, talking about the conservative approach. And, I'm talk, and I, 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 there's so many questions that I don't think we have time to delve into. I'm curious if you were, um, Manju, if you were aware of or what your thoughts were about regarding the Patrick Ewell situation. I'm not sure if you were, uh, that if that's hit any of you guys. Have you guys heard any of this situation with uh, Shankarian, Journal of Shankarian Analysis and that? No, okay. I'm just gonna leave that rabbit hole for another time. It's just uh, okay. It's, it's, but, but just to give you, give my the listeners and all you guys just a small uh, sliver of what's going on. It's it's kind of just the conservative mindset is like very just just very limited, and it actually makes yes. me really appreciate the Orf Schulberg because because um, as you were saying, um, how uh, if you like. You had this timbre in your head that was not what the conservatory mindset liked, and there just there are so many ways for us to delve into music, and I think it's important for us to extend that to our students. That there is not just one way; if there is an efficient way, and there's a way, or supposedly, but I don't know. Sorry, my my my, my gears are turning with like a lot of different ways. Like, but there's only so much time for me to share. So I don't know. Um, I'm just gonna put a pause here. Sorry, before I just explode. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Don't explode, Jaja. <laughs> I'll try my best not to. <laughs> well, actually, well, I'm curious um, what all your thoughts are. Like, I feel like we have been told so much that music is a universal language. And I find that such a problematic statement, personally. And what are curious, what are your thoughts on music as a universal language? Question, do we have time to talk about universal, uh, music as a universal language? I don't know. That sounds like an episode. <laughs> well, just for this, maybe you can delve on farther, but like, do you think that's... I think that is an episode in itself, right? Yes. You know, it's, yeah. yeah. Because it's, I think that's addressing yeah. a lot of what we talked about. Mm. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Just a lot of, just a lot of ideas are spewing out. Is that the Colin, is that the Colin question of the week, Jonathan? Is we music a universal language? Okay. So why or why not? I, I want, <laughs> I want the caveats because... You want the why or why not? Yes, because for me, I mean, not to affect other people's mindsets, like, as we were saying, like everyone has their own voice, everyone has their own perspective. And for us to say that music is universal, kind of just places things in one, funnels things down one pole. So, but that's just Jonathan Seligman's perspective. What's your perspective listening for you guys? So listeners, we want to know what you think. Is music the universal language? Why or why not? Call 619-880-3001. Again, 619-880-3001 and tell us what you think. And if you reply, we'll put you at the end of the episode. <laughs> there you go. Tell us. That's a very interesting question. Thanks, Jonathan. I know that you had something at four. Well, my roommate hasn't snuck in yet. So I okay, so we're going to keep going. I I feel like we could make this a four-hour episode if we wanted to. Definitely could. <laughs> but we should probably okay, wrap I it up. A, yeah, I have a saying from Rabindranath Tagore again. 
you know and his his quote was like music fills the infinite between two souls mm. there's no question of language but it depends it's like for example let me give you an example of it's not about music my husband is as different from me as night and day okay how did we fall in love with each other i had to come all the way across the world to find this white american of norwegian german descent what spoke to us we don't know is that a language or is it something beyond language you know and then things that like why would i not fall in love with somebody else i don't know whether but i'm trying to say about the music i don't know whether it's a language or something there's certain things that appeal to certain mm -hmm. people a certain group of people but it probably doesn't appeal to another group of people i don't know it's i don't know whether music is like falling in love but anyway it's something else is it like falling in love could you sorry could you say that quote one more time just so i can just the quote the one more time yeah, oh okay let me let me make sure i have the right one okay music it's a, it, it's from bengali to english so there's a lot lost in translation when i kind of okay. say my quotes there's a lot lost in translation it sounds perfect in my language okay but um anyway so music fills the infinite between two souls music fills the infinite between two souls Manchu, it was, it was a pleasure meeting you. I do have to bounce, though. So, okay. Um, Bye, Jonjon. Yep. But, guys, take Thank care. You, Bye. Bye, you. my friend. See you later. Well, thank you so much. I, I definitely have a lot to think about afterwards. And, um, yeah, thank you for your perspective and for taking the time to talk to us today. Is there anything else that you wanted to say before we go? Oh, no, I don't think so. Thank you so much for having mm -hmm. me. This is a wonderful conversation. It's so powerful. And like I said, um, I think coming to music and teaching and learning from a sense of humility, um, I think that is so important. Even kind of interacting with another person, especially with people of color and colleagues of color, mm -hmm. knowing that, you know, I mean, I think uh, Mark Brackett says this as taking a meta moment, you know, just kind mm -hmm. of think before you speak because some things like you know you might think um that's what people of color always have to do is like think yeah. twice before you say certain things so again i would just say interacting with people you know who are not from your community or your culture or your racial identity just being mindful and purposeful and aware mm -hmm. that would be wonderful that would be a great step to kind of creating this kind of communication keeping those channels of communication open because what you see on the surface is probably not everything. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. Not one just the my... physical mask we have on, there's a lot going on. Right. Or yeah. That one of my very favorite quotes from the beautiful book, the, the boy, the mole, the fox and the horse by Charlie Massey is, isn't it interesting? Nearly everything, uh, you can only see our outsides, but nearly everything happens on the inside. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So thank yeah. you. Thank, thank you, my friend. Thanks. Yes. Thanks.
I want to take a quick break and thank my husband, Brian, who's been working behind the scenes producing these episodes every week on all of the platforms and on time. But you need to know that he is first a financial planner for Mission Trails Financial. Mission Trails Financial is a partner that seeks to guide clients in the journey to financial success. They believe that people need a financial advisor that aims to provide strategies for success. Mission Trails Financial helps people navigate investments, tax planning, and insurance. Imagine working with an advisor who isn't tied to specific brands. Mission Trails Financial has a fiduciary responsibility to act in the best interests of their clients by providing independent, objective advice. Their mission is to help clients accomplish their financial goals. As Joe Vitale once said, a goal should scare you a little and excite you a lot. Do yourself a favor and set up a time to chat with Mission Trails Financial. Visit www.missiontrailsfinancial.com or call 619-419-0238 to schedule a call. You'll be glad you did. We believe that leaning on professionals is how we get ahead. Check out the program notes for more information. Um, well, do you want to do the where to find everybody? I don't know how it goes. I don't ever pay attention. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Manchu Jiraraj is able to be found on Instagram if you want to find her. It's at Manju Jiraraj, like her name, and her name will be spelled out and linked in the episode description. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Mrs. Pridmore. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Mrs. Pridmore, and you can find me at crystalpridmore.com. Mark, where can people find you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, all under Mr. Keemer. And I know that John is on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all under Mr. Sellington. Yep. And as he spells out in every episode. <laughs> yes. I'm not going to do it. So take that, John. Should have been here. Seligman. It really is just like it sounds, though. And you can find Chaotic Harmony on, on all the things at CH Classroom, except for YouTube, which is Chaotic Harmony Classroom. And you got to yep. spell it out. And at chaoticharmonyclassroom.com, we actually do want you to call that phone number. So call and leave us a message and let me know um, what you think and we will launch another episode based on it. So do you think that music is the universal language? Why or why not? I know I have lots of thoughts about that. So <laughs> the number, <laughs> I mean, to me, it's like, well, yeah. Um, so the number is 619. Oh, shoot. We're going to have to edit this part out. Where did it go? Dum -ba -dum -ba -ba. We're going to find that number. Call on through. All right. And we do want you to call us and tell us if you think that music is the universal language and why or why not. That's 619-880-3001. Thanks, guys, for listening. Bye. Bye. The Chaotic Harmony Podcast is a joint project between Crystal Pridmore, Jonathan Seligman, Zoe Kumagai, and Mark Kamer. You can find us online at chaoticharmonyclassroom.com. You can email us at chaoticharmonyclassroom at gmail and let us know what you think. Give us feedback about what you would like to hear in future episodes. We're on all the socials. Find us on facebook.com slash chaoticharmonyclassroom. You can find us on Twitter at chclassroom, Instagram at chaoticharmonyclassroom, and you can even find our episodes on YouTube. Chaotic Harmony is the name of our channel. Special thanks to Brian Pridmore for his help with production and equipment. www.pridmorian.com. 